I invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, and tonight we'll be looking at, God willing, verses 11 and following, following, but I'd like to begin at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, just to, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Kings, and tonight we're, we're going to examine a little shorter section than what's listed in the Bible. We'll be examining together 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12, I should say, through 30, but I want to begin to help us with the context a little bit. Nathan, I'm sorry, are you able to turn me up just a little bit more? My voice is straining a little bit. If the feedback starts, sorry, I'll take that blame too. Thank you very much for your help. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priest took up the Ark. They brought up the Ark of the Lord in the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. And the priest and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Then the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in place of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel. 
as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your you, who have kept with your servant my father David that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David my father that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your son, sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and your people Israel. And when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask God's help as we seek to understand. We pray now to the same God whose glory filled the temple on that day. We pray to the same God whom Solomon addressed. And we come to you far away from Jerusalem, really on the other side of the earth. But we come to you as those who are recipients of your grace and your faithfulness to this covenant that Solomon references. So we pray, God, tonight by your Son that you would teach us about yourself and that who you are would shape our lives individually, our families, our church, and increasingly that we might have the privilege of telling others about you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The Bible has a lot to say about people and circumstances. As you read through your Bible, um, we learn about David, we learn about Solomon, we hear a lot about average, ordinary people as well. For example, in the New Testament, we hear a lot about Paul, or uh, he wasn't necessarily an ordinary person, but we hear about people in the churches. We 
we have in the Bible not this far distant description of this other world, but we have a lot of description of the world that we live in. Yes, we're separated by time and by culture, but one of the appealing things about the Bible is as we read it, it's describing men and women a lot like us. And so as we go along, we obviously learn about the character of men and women and godly men and women in particular, but there are, there are sections of the Bible. The whole Bible is ultimately about God and about Christ, but there are particular sections that are highlights of the character of God and the attributes of God, and this is one of those sections. It is full of teaching and revelation as to who God is. So yes, we can learn in this passage some about prayer. We can learn some about worship. We can make observations about the temple and about the worship and of Old Testament worship and so forth and so on. But what we want to keep first and foremost and front and center is the God who is revealed in this portion of God's word. And this is the God of the Bible, the one and same God that we worship today. Because God does not change. It's one of the attributes we learn in Scripture. God does not change. And in Hebrews, Jesus, we learn that Jesus Christ, like the Father, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so here tonight, I want to spend some time with you and reflect for a few moments on the character of God as revealed in this text. I'm not sure what that pump is, but... That's another nice sound. Uh, is that outside? Is that the heater? No? Really? Fascinating. Okay. Yeah, we need a better place. Nathan, are you able to turn me up at all a little bit more? Sorry, without feedback? All right. Again, feedback. If it's feedback, it's, I'll take the blame. Not you. We won't blame the sound guy. You're doing your job. Thank you. That's really helpful. Yeah, if you can get me up. Thank you. So I have, I have six observations tonight about the character of God. Nathan, that's great. Thank you. It's helping me. I hope it's not too loud for everybody out there. First, I want to look with you at verses 11 and 12. I want to back up a little bit. Actually, verses 10 and 11, I'm sorry, uh, and 12. When, the Solomon, when Solomon built the temple on the day of dedication, this is in the fall, um, September, October, that kind of season, their fall, um, and uh, this is the time when the Feast of Tabernacles would take place, remembering that God was faithful in being with his people in the wilderness. Here, upon the dedication of the temple, this solemn time of worship, when God comes to meet with his people, his coming to dwell, as it were, in the temple is accompanied by cloud and thick gloom. Um, you see in verse 10 that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. And then verse 11, the priests could not stand to minister because of this cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then Solomon testifies that the Lord, or Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, our God, said he would dwell in the thick cloud. Now what is this cloud? This cloud is the very same cloud that enshrouded God at Mount Sinai where God's covenant with Israel was inaugurated. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11, you don't need to turn there. Moses says, you came near and stood at, to the people. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, 
and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. So God, when he revealed himself to his people in his glory, when he drew near to them, it was accompanied by a thick cloud. Interesting that the angel of the Lord, who protected Israel and protected them from the Egyptians when they were chasing them, that the pillar of cloud was also as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of thick gloom by day. And so here, when, when the temple is dedicated, this thick cloud, this glorious, dark, fearsome cloud is visible to everyone, and it comes and it fills the temple so much so that the priests have to leave. And what we learn here, perhaps, and we're reminded of, is that this God, remember, we're, we're learning about God tonight in this passage, that he is the holy other God. He is the holy other God. If you're taking notes, this is my first point. God is the holy other God. In other words, even as God draws near to his people, there's a visible reminder that he is distinct from us, that he is separate, that he is other. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, and several of you have this commentary, I will remind you, we started, was it back in the summertime? But several of you have this commentary in First Kings, and I encourage you to pick it back up, and it's very readable. But he points out here, it's very helpful, he says that, that God has joined together in this passage clarity and mystery. So the cloud, says Davis, is visible and is a sign of God's presence, and yet the cloud also conceals The people do not see God, Yahweh, in the full blaze of his presence. God is clearly there, but they do not see him, shall we say, in a bare-faced way. The cloud is both Yahweh's glory and covers Yahweh's glory. It both reveals and conceals. Here's the key. The cloud and thick darkness signify that there is a certain hiddenness about God. There is much that we cannot see and do not know. This is really helpful for us, and not more than helpful, necessary for us to remember, particularly in our day when the church and our propensity is to continually dumb God down. And this is not surprising because that's just what idolatrous hearts do. We who are made in the image of God continually in our sin try to remake God in our image, more like us. And so the God of today in your average church that you go to worship, you don't have any sense that he's a God who dwells in thick cloud and gloom and he's glorious. And that if you had a face to face encounter with the living God, that it would be rather terrifying. And we need to remember that the scriptural revelation is that we will never see the face of God except in the face of the incarnate Son. We will know God in his glory. God will dwell with his people when we are with him. But there, even in the eternal future, will still be this otherness, this mysteriousness, this hiddenness, this glory of God, apart from the face of our incarnate, resurrected Lord. And even in the revelation of John, Uh, The revelation of Christ, uh, the Spirit gave to John, 
even there we see Christ in his glory and, and his face is brilliant, shining like the sun. So we need to remember that God is holy other. This God who dwells among his people. And this is, this is incredible. Remember, this is just a tiny little nation in a really, you know, a significant part of the world in terms of being a crossroads. But that's all they are. There are crossroads in Israel between Egypt and other incredible, you know, powerful nations. This is not a significant uh, nation in the scheme of things. And yet God in his condescension chooses to dwell among his people. But even as he draws near to dwell with his people, he maintains who he is, the glorious God, the God who is holy other. Very helpful and so necessary for us to remember. And this, I would say, is pretty much the dividing point in evangelical churches today, is whether the God that is worshipped in that church is the, the holy other God, Or is he the chummy God that we made up because we want a God who's much more approachable? And so he is the holy other God. And remember, this is is a very important truth to remember. God has not changed. He does not change. He cannot change. So the glory is God that's being revealed here all these thousands of years ago in 1 Kings chapter 8 is the God that we worship tonight. This is our God. Now, in the New Testament, with the coming of Christ, we know more about God. We know more about God's grace, and there's much of God's grace even all the way back here, of course, in the Old Testament. So we have more revealed to us, but God does not change. He is the holy other God. Secondly, tonight, I want you to notice in verses 15 through 19 that God is the, sorry, is the commanding God, the commanding God. Now, I could have titled that point differently. I thought about it, and I, I, you know, I almost said sovereign, but I thought, well, you know, we use that phrase a lot, and it's almost become commonplace. Why am I saying that? Because in verses 14 and following, especially 15, Solomon recounts the words that God said to David, his father, the king of Israel. And remember, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that David, because of his love for God, just was convicted that he'd built a house for himself. But here the Ark of the Covenant was still in a tent, in a tabernacle, and there was not a, a visible place built for the worship and the glory of God. And so David put, he said, I'm going to build God a temple. Well, God comes to David and essentially, this is paraphrase, says, no, you're not. Now, what God in the Middle East who had a king that wanted to build that place for him would say to that king, no, you're not? None of them, because first of all, they're not living. And basically, the king, the gods, in a sense, it was this, it was this very pragmatic relationship. But whoever the, the king or the um, emperor was, um, they got to dictate the terms, pretty much, of how their god or goddess should be worshipped. And God makes it very clear, even to King David. David, he commended David for what he had in his heart, but David, you're not going to set the terms of my worship. I do that. So, David, you're not going to build me a house. Now, can you just imagine 
a king being told by a god, no, you're not going to build me a temple. Huh. That's very humbling. Even King David. And it's a good reminder to us that we want to be careful to remember that the God we worship, if you want to put it this way, he's the in-charge God. The in-charge God. This is so hard for us to remember, particularly in our hyper-individualistic age. Self-authority. But God is the in-charge God. He does not ever condescend in terms of his authority. He's God. And he sets the terms of his worship. So he's the commanding God. He determines how he shall dwell among his people and how his people shall honor him. This is the God we worship. Thirdly, in verses 20 through 26, Solomon emphasizes especially that this God that dwells among his people is the faithful God. This is a large emphasis of this text, and it's a large emphasis, of course, of the scriptures. That this God who is wholly other, this God who is the sovereign commanding God, is the faithful God. He does what he says. That's what Solomon means here. Notice the emphasis in verses 20 and following. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. God had told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his descendant would, would, take, would rise to the throne and he, that David's son would build a temple. And Solomon's just pointing out what God said to my father. Look at it. It's come place, come to, come to pass all these years later. Solomon, I'm sorry, verse 21, he said, uh, he's recounting the words of uh, the faithfulness of God when he points out that God had brought his, the Israelites out of the land of Egypt into this land, and he has established the kingdom as he promised. And then down in verse 23, as, as Solomon turns and he addresses the assembly and then begins to pray, he spreads out his hands towards heaven, again, as a sign of, you know, of reverence, of awe, and of, of humility. And he prays, O Lord, God of Israel, verse 23, there is no God like you in heaven or above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness, that's the word hesed there, to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as is this day. So Solomon's just emphasizing that the God of the true God is a God who does what he says. Not one of his words ever falls to the ground. That's one I've shared that with you before, but at the end of Judges and in the beginning of 1 Samuel, I believe, um, there's a reference to this phrase that, that not one of the good words which the Lord promised fell to the ground. In other words, whatever God stands up, as far as his promise, never ever wobbles, never ever totters, never falls. His word stands, and it, he always fulfills it. This is a wonderful encouragement to us to have confidence in this God. He does what he says. He will not fail. He will do what he says. Fourthly, verse 27, God is the immense God. 
the immense God. One of the attributes of God that many perhaps don't know of or haven't considered is God's immensity. Immensity. Now, by that, we don't mean that he's, he's like the Buddhas in Thailand that are fat. I mean, they're huge. They're just these Buddhas are just sitting around. They're just these massive. I don't mean to be, you know, unkind. I'm just saying they, they really are. They make their Buddhas big. And, uh, you know, Buddhas, he's not skinny. And so when we say the immensity of God, of course, God is spirit. We're not talking about the certain shape he has. What we mean by immensity is that he is all that he is everywhere without limit. So, yes, in this scene, Solomon, under orders of God, has built a visible temple, a glorious place, a house of worship where the people of God can come and recognize God's kingship, his reign, and they can serve him and worship him. It's a place. It's a location. It has a zip code, as it were. It takes up a certain amount of square footage. It's in Jerusalem, in the city of David. And yet, though God comes and the cloud is there, and yes, he dwells among his people, we, have to, we ought to never think that because God is, is dwelling in one place that somehow he's limited to that one place. And that's what, that's what Solomon recognizes. It's very, it's very humble of Solomon here to recognize. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Notice that Solomon doesn't even say, well, God will dwell in my temple. I mean, even this planet, this globe, this planet, Solomon's saying, I mean, will God even dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. In other words, the entire stratosphere, the cosmos, the, the stars, the galaxies. Of course, he didn't have access to the Hubble telescope, but he has a concept here of the heavens and then of the spiritual heavens. In other words, not the created order, not even the heavens that God has created can contain God. He is immense, that he cannot be contained. And this is right and appropriate for Solomon as he's built God a house, as it were, to, to, in humility to recognize that our God is not going to dwell even in this majestic, glorious new temple that has been built. And this is good for us to remember that our God is immense. The God we worship is immense, which is so encouraging. It's a bit humbling and frightening at times, but it's also so encouraging. Our God's not limited to a zip code. Our God truly is awesome and immense. He is the immense God. Fifthly, I just have two more points tonight. In verses 28 and 29, Solomon appeals to God now and says, have regard to the prayer of your servant, or literally, Solomon says, your slave. Solomon's referring to himself as a, as a slave of God, a, a, a vassal. In other words, he may be king, but he's owned by God. Listen to your servant and his supplication. Listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant prays before you today. You know, there's humility here. There's no expectation of just kind of tossing up a prayer. There's, there is a reverence here, a humility. But what he prays is that God's eyes, verse 29, may be open 
and that he will hear or listen to the prayer. Solomon asserts that this God is a seeing and hearing God, unlike the gods of the nations. He, he can see and he really can hear. And Solomon doesn't assume that, that in, in arrogance that God has to listen or God has to see, but rather appeals, oh God, please look upon us. Now, of course, God sees all things. God knows all things. And yet Solomon is appealing that God would be moved in his mercy and condescension and kindness to be attentive to his people, to see us in our need and to hear us when we pray. That God had ordained that the temple would be the place that the visible place at that time in history that he would meet with his people. And so rather than assuming that God is somehow bound to meet with the people, he, in humility, asks God and asserts that God is the seeing and hearing God. And then verse 30, finally, he is the God who chooses to dwell among his people. Solomon says, listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, hear in heaven your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Interesting. So God, in a sense, is said to dwell in heaven. And yet, at the beginning of this passage, Solomon, in verse 13, had said, I have built you a dwelling place forever, a place for your dwelling forever. This idea of dwelling, of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There is nowhere that God cannot be. It's it's impossible. God is immense. God is omnipresent. And yet, this language of dwelling is really to help us understand that in relationship to his people, God manifests or makes known his presence, his love, his character, when he draws near to his people in grace. And it is a grace that God drew near to his people Israel of old, that he entered into a covenant with them, and that he, in this immense God, creator of the heavens and the earth, Uh, God over all, in, in love for his people, to help his people in their worship, condescended not only to the earth, but to permit a portion of his glory, as it were, to be recognized and visible in this locale. It's amazing. But this is our God. He loves his people. He's not only immense. He's not only holy other. He's not only commanding. He is faithful and he loves, he loves his people. He loves his people and he wants to be with his people. That's what we find at the end of the Bible and with this we'll close tonight. Turn with me to Revelation if you would. Revelation 21. We reference it. I, I, you notice that I, I do direct you to the book of Revelation, the close of the Bible, quite a bit. And that's intentional because I want us to remember this is not a historical study tonight. Yes, we are studying something happened that a long time ago with Solomon, but we're studying what the Bible says about how God relates to his people both now and how he will relate to his people in the future. 
And what do we find in Revelation 21? John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And then he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, verse 2, coming down. And then verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place, in other words, of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. What an incredible thing that this majestic, glorious, immense, holy other God loves his people so that he wants to dwell among us. We'll learn next, more next Sunday evening, Lord willing, about how we are to relate to this God um, in light of our sin. But tonight, our hearts can be stirred at the thought that this God, he's our God. And though he is so awesome, so majestic, that he intends and wants, get this, really, he wants to be with us. And we know now that not only in the future does God dwell among us, but we know now that God dwells among us even tonight by his spirit. And that he is with us as we recognize his presence. But we've learned tonight a little bit about just, we've been reminded maybe, just who is this God who dwells among us? And what a privileged people we are. Let's pray. God, we are so unworthy of your grace and of your kindness, and we marvel that you would love us so. And we thank you that we worship you now, not in a temple made with hands, but that we come to you in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we approach you, in, as it were, in Jesus, through Jesus Christ to your heavenly dwelling, that when we pray, we have access not to a temple in Jerusalem, but to the very throne of God in the highest heaven. We thank you for this. And yet at the same time, we recognize that you are not distant. You are here with us by your spirit. Put within us a fresh appreciation that you want to dwell with us. May we pray, O oh God, that you would, be, you would be pleased to dwell among us in power and that we would live such a way as a church and individually that you would love being with us, that we would be people in a church that, that you do not offend your, your senses, do not offend your holiness, but who are mindful of you and who please you and who cheer the heart of God. We ask this, that we may be pleasing to you in Christ's name. Amen.